This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. Again, I'm the host, David Intricasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss with the author, Timothy Huff, Professor of Management, Healthcare Systems, and Health Policy in the Demore McKim School of Business and School of Public Policy and Urban Affairs at Northeastern University, his recent published work titled Next in Line, Lowered Care Expectations in an Age of Retail and Value-Based Healthcare. Professor Hoff, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's good to be here. Professor Hoff's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. I'll largely dispense with an introductory statement other than to state this work largely examines the degradation of the therapeutic relationship between the doctor and patient, moreover between primary care physicians and their patients in an industry increasingly defined as corporate medicine. So with that uh, brief statement, uh, Professor Hoff, let me begin by asking uh, about your research for the book. How did you research this work? Well, uh, I'm a sociologist, and uh, I'm one that particularly uh, focuses on sort of more anthropological investigations of different kinds of healthcare issues. That is, I like to actually get in, talk to the people at the ground level, the healthcare workers, patients, um, to see how they're experiencing, you know, different aspects of the healthcare world. So for this, uh, you know, I, I've been interested for a long time in studying physician behavior. I've been studying a lot of the primary care system transformation that's been going on. And, uh, some of my earlier research kind of led me, I did a book on primary care doctors uh, a few years ago called Practice Under Pressure, and there were some findings in that book that sort of struck me that I didn't get a chance to really investigate uh, for that work. So, uh, and one of them was really just how, how they started, you know, were talking about changes to their interactions with patients and and how sort of uh, their relationships with patients were changing as a result of some of the, the pressures they were under each day in their in their practice world. So I thought it'd be good, you know, to finally, after a few years of doing other research, go out and, and actually talk to some patients, talk to some primary care doctors, really just to get a, a sense of sort of their lived experience interacting with one another. So for the book, I interviewed a total of about 80 doctors and patients and you know, essentially just took a qualitative approach, asked them to talk about, you know, their ongoing and re more recent experiences interacting with their doctors or with their patients, um, and to talk a little bit about, you know, what what they felt that relationship and those interactions looked like, what were some, you know, good things about it, what were some things they were not happy with, uh, and then really just tried to get a sense of, you know, how they saw really their experiences and made sense of those experiences in the primary care realm. Uh, and then and then I sort of stepped back and, and it's like I do with a lot of my work, took that sort of micro-level analysis 
and kind of try to embed it in a more macro level analysis of just the larger system forces and things that are pressing on health care, but particularly primary care, um, with the with the intent being to try and get a better understanding of what might be driving some of those micro level uh that micro level sense making among doctors and patients so it really kind of was a little bit of a mixed level analysis really taking you know macro trends macro forces and looking at how they were really playing out in the everyday experiences of doctors and patients okay thank you let's get into those macro or market forces A good deal of your uh, work or book is dedicated to describing the deterioration of what you term the doctor-patient dyad, Uh, though I know you could spend more time than we have uh, describing what explains this, but what are some of the more uh, prominent uh, market forces you found that are degrading or corrupting this physician-patient relationship? Yeah, I think, you know, and it's probably no secret to those who work in healthcare and, and, you know, healthcare policymakers, but, you know, there's several, several things going on that I think create what, what I would call sort of a perfect storm of, um, imperatives and, and things that are, are really transforming patient care. Uh, one is, you know, the whole quality, and I talk about these in my book and really take a critical approach towards them. Um, and some of these things, I will say, are, you know, they've done a lot of good for health care and they've done a lot of positive things for primary care, um, but they, they're double-edged swords. So one is one is the sort of quality, you know, the modern quality improvement movement, uh, and particularly it's, it's really heavy emphasis on quantitative performance measurement uh, and the use of metrics to really... Uh, what I call kind of cookbook uh, physician behavior and medical care as much as possible. And what I mean by cookbook is really try and turn a lot of what doctors do into sort of recipes or formulas. Um, you know, here's the ingredients. You do this, this, this. You use this, this, this. It takes this long. You get this outcome. Uh, yeah, you term it metric fever. Metric fever, yeah, exactly. And it's, you know, we, we've seen it in the last, you know, it started with managed care really back in the 90s, and, uh, you know, it's it certainly has not abated, um, and, and there's a whole industry around it. You know, we have consultants, we have large organizations like LeapFrog, National Quality Forum, IHI, you know, and these places do really good things, and there's no doubt that some of the quality movement has improved care, although if you look at the research, um, not as much as we would we would like it to or would have imagined it would have given the resource investment. But that's one force, and, and that's really pressed down on doctors and, and patients uh, and put pressure on them to ch- turn their transaction, you know, turn their interactions into a very transactional mode. Um, another related force is really this emphasis on efficiency and value, particularly, you know, what's happening now with value-based payment. Um, and the quality movement feeds into that because the efficiency and value movement and, and the re- payment reform around value really draws its strength from the use of metrics and the ability to, to quantitatively and highly precisely measure what, what doctors do. Um, but this, again, you know, the, the definition of value has become one of, you know, uh, things like how quickly can a doctor do something, um, how much can technology be used to replace the human interface, 
to do something. And so, you know, that's another force I talk about. The other one is really um, the corporatization of care, which, again, uses both of these things that I just talked about. And, and the corporatization of care really is this trend of, you know, doctors and, and most healthcare professionals, providers now increasingly working for large organizations, working as salary employees. Um, and really now the, the, the organization, the big hospital system or integrated delivery system taking over for the individual doctor in terms of, you know, representing itself as the source of all medical care and, and advice for the patient, um, you know, and the doctors are, are simply the vehicles for these organizations uh, to brand themselves with the patient. Uh, and then finally, the more recent thing that I really talk about uh, a lot in the book is what I call the the retailization of healthcare, mm-hmm. particularly primary care. You know, and all these forces sort of they they've all they all sort of complement each other in in sort of creating this perfect storm. Uh, and the the retailization, you know, is really just particularly in primary care what's happening, which is the move to to more transactional forms of care delivery that focus on you know speed. Uh, a basic form of reliability in delivering the service, um, you know, the, the emphasis on volume, on turning over more transactions, more visits, uh, more testing, more, you know, things like that, rather than focusing on, uh, you know, more of the relational excellence between individual doctor and individual patient, which, you know, may not always be as efficient as we'd like, but certainly research shows over time has delivered a lot of value uh, for both doctors and patients. So you take all these forces together uh, and then other smaller forces that, you know, things that are happening that are related to all these things like the standardization of of care delivery. uh, And really it's this kind of environment now in which the doctor-patient relationship sits and one that I argue in the book using some of the data I have, you know, it's, it's an environment that's become pretty hostile to doctors and patients being able to develop sort of strong, trusting relationships with each other in a lot of ways. Right. You say on retail, you note the metrics, uh, convenient, accessible, timely, affordable, and of certain quality. Reducing primary care docs, you use the phrases uh, traffic cop and, and middleman frequently. The, um, the question I have, possibly moreover, are these trends in some economically uh, rational? And the reason I ask is because uh, primary care, we've known since Barbara Starfield's studies at Hopkins, is very cost-effective, efficient care. And there's actually a report out just uh, recently by the Healthcare Cost Institute that showed between 12 and 16, primary care visits substantially declined uh, 18% was the decline they saw in primary care visits over this period. And they also showed that the only other decrease, uh, which wasn't even close, was in radiology services. So um, despite maybe the retailization uh, we're seeing, and of course this gets to the, the number of primary care docs, which you know there's a shortage thereof, but HCCI's findings aside, back to is is any or all of this economically rational? 
Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, as you noted, uh, and I talk about this in the book in the first chapter, right, the the value of a, of a dyadic, uh, person-to-person, human, human-centered, highly relational doctor-patient relationship in primary care, um, it has a lot of value uh, because it generates qualities like trust, empathy, respect, dialogue uh, that actually have been shown through research, you know, communication, to actually uh, improve things like patient compliance, patient self-management, uh, patient willingness to listen to medical advice, um, you know. So, uh, and by the way, those are a lot of things that actually go into uh, effective prevention, that is stopping an illness before it happens, uh, and also addressing other high-cost diagnoses, mental health um, and uh, behavioral health, so given that, you know, yes, the doctor is the most important, the most expensive input in some ways into the primary care workflow. Uh, so in some ways, I, you know, what I fear is that this retail thinking and a lot of these forces have really, in a covert way, have been designed to make the primary care transaction, you know, cheaper. Um, and more efficient by, by kind of workflowing the doctor uh, out of a lot of things mm-hmm. um, and, and by actually trying to keep patients away from coming into the traditional office and having an interaction with the doctor or the provider. Uh, you know, things like personalized health care, things like apps, things like, uh, you know, uh, even retail clinics. You know, these are these are sort of low lower cost, but you know, forms of, of primary care access. But what we have to ask ourselves is, you know, they might, they might be lower cost to somebody, um, but what are they really accomplishing? And, and are they able to do more than just really basic forms of primary care delivery, at least at this point? And, and if that's true, you know, basic forms of primary care delivery isn't the kind of primary care medicine that Starfield and others over the, over decades have found to be the kind of primary care medicine that, that really saves money, saves lives, and prevents illness in a population. Right. So the demise of, we could, as you say, uh, relational care. I, I, did, I did find it interesting you juxtaposed two forms of trust, and because you also have an erosion of that, um, because, as you suggest further, there's a loss of a holistic approach or holistic manner to care. What are the two forms? You talk about relational and calculative trust. Calculative trust. Yeah. So that and those are from sort of the literature. Um, you know. Uh, you know. So the calculative trust is more of an economic form of trust, right? It's the kind of trust that you have. It, it's sort of Pavlovian. It's sort of like you know an economic bond. You know, I I I'm told how much something is going to cost. I pay for it. I pay that amount. I get that thing in return. You know, it's it's kind of. It's kind of the trust you have with, you know, Amazon or when you, you know, buy some consumer products, some discretionary product. Um, it's not long-lasting trust. It's trust that centers around the qualities of the actual individual transaction. Um, you know, if I, if I pay for my thing on Amazon and I order it and I get it when they say I'm going to get it and it doesn't come to me broken uh, and I open it up and it works, well, then, you know, I trust Amazon but that trust is limited 
you know, to that sort of discrete transaction. Now, I may, I may experience that trust over and over with those transactions, with different transactions, but that's different than this form of relational trust that the literature says is much more of a glue uh, in terms of, you know, uh, bonding individuals together in, in a so, sort of a form of a mutually beneficial relationship. And, and that kind of trust you know, has been talked about and shown to be longer lasting, more beneficial in terms of getting human beings, for example, in, in areas like medicine to actually do things that they're supposed to do. Um, so, and, and that kind of trust really comes about from, from human relationships that are allowed to cultivate over time and interaction that's, that's interpersonal where people verify from each other's actions over time that, you know, the other person is trying to help them or the other person is is doing things in, the, in their interest. And, and that kind of trust, once it's established, actually tends to be very stable. It actually tends to be sort of self-propagating in, in terms of driving uh, the behaviors of both parties to the relationship. Uh, so it tends to become very efficient and very low cost and very you know, economical in its own right, whereas, you know, calculative trust uh, can be broken quite easily uh, with a few bad transactions um, and and is, is sort of built more on the economic exchange rather than, you know, the relational exchange. So transactional as an impersonal and on the relational, there is, I don't think I saw in your volume, but there is a well-studied aspect of strong relational care or relation-focused or centered care, and that's a placebo effect in that the whole ritual of seeking care, seeing a physician actually has a, as inherently uh, just a curative aspect or benefit to it. Let me, let me ask about the, the physicians in all this, the, the primary care moreover, the primary care physicians. What effect has it had on them? We know that we, as I mentioned, we know, and it's well known, there's a shortage thereof. Uh, largely for the reasons you've cited, but what's what's their view and what's their sentiment regarding uh, this uh, increasing movement towards defined corporate medicine? Well, it's a great question, and you know I've been studying doctors and particularly primary care doctors for a long time. I was a I worked in a primary care office as an administrator, following into academics. I have a lot of friends who are primary care doctors. Um, I study the, the, the doctors, primary care doctors in the UK as well as in America, and I think it's sort of all the same feeling. I think there's a lot of ambivalence. I think um, primary care physicians in particular are sort of, I think, uh, a little bit, particularly older ones, kind of kind of stunned <laughs> at sort of the things that are happening around them. I think they feel overwhelmed. I think the whole movement of, of you know, particularly primary care doctors, you know, going to work as salaried employees um, is a direct response to, to the, the sense among these folks that, you know, it's impossible to, to have your own business anymore. It's impossible to really uh, have the kind of practice maybe that you want in terms of being able to be, uh, you know, have, have a, a good patient panel that you can sort of have these longstanding relationships with. So, uh, and as I talk about in the book, I mean, all of these doctors are still very cognizant of their best 
you know, what what makes being a doctor the most fun and the most rewarding, right? It's things like like trust and develop and having these deeper relationships with patients, these sort of substantive interactions. But I think also, as I talk about in the book, many of them talk about it increasingly in a somewhat romanticized way. Uh, and, and so I, I sort of highlight this in the book, you know, it's, it's hard to know in talking with some of them, you know, what, you know, just how relational their care is with a lot of their patients anymore. Um, I, I fear that a lot of them have moved more into the transactional realm because they've been forced to, uh, you know, more patients they don't know, quicker work days, uh, you know, seeing 30 to 40 patients in a day, truncated visits, having to use guidelines all the time. Uh, and so um, I, I think there could be some generational effects. I think younger ones may not be as aware uh, because they simply may not have an, as much opportunity in today's healthcare to develop these kinds of relationships with patients that are going to show them uh, just how rewarding they can be, uh, both for them and the patient. And so, you know, the effects on them may be a little bit less, but there's no secret. Look, when you look at, when you look at the surveys of job satisfaction and burnout among doctors and primary care doctors in particular, I, I would bet those high levels of both, uh, job dissatisfaction and of burnout are directly related to, uh, in part this feeling that, you know, they they don't feel in control anymore of creating these points of relational excellence with their patients, and that kind of drags them down in the workday. So you mentioned uh, research, survey research from the Physician Foundation, so I'll note that. And you also mentioned that in some, uh, this movement or evolution of the industry is to keep the patient actually away from the primary care physician. I Just as an aside, I, I have to note this. So you're probably well aware the HIMSS conference was a week or two ago. Uh, this is the HIT meeting. It now attracts 40,000 attendees. And here's one uh, essay related to uh, this past conference. And here's, here's just a sentence from a chief quality officer at a large health delivery system. In context of this, you'll find interesting, quote, unquote, the more we use technology... The more humanity returns to the business of healthcare, I have to say, after reading your book and read, just was, I just almost fell over when I read that. Um, feel free to comment, but I do want to move over to uh, move on to uh, your conclusion. Your final chapter is titled "Saving the Physician or the Doctor-Physician Relationship and Raising Expectations," and in it, I was I was somewhat struck by. You give a somewhat positive spin, although it's somewhat mixed, but a somewhat positive spin to concierge medicine. Um, can you explain that? Uh, can you repeat that again? I give a positive uh, spin to that? Yeah, I thought on balance you were reasonably or more positive in my view about concierge medicine. But how do you see to what extent concierge may actually be a solution? Well, I think you know. I think what I say in the book is is there might be there might be a lot of qualities associated with that model, right? Uh, that are qualities we used to see in the traditional mm-hmm. doctor-patient relationship that sort of many people had a chance to 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 participate in in primary care, but no longer do. Um, so, so I think you know that whole movement, which which you know, from what I understand, the folks 
the folks in that realm now don't like it called concierge care. I think they call it, uh, there's other names for it now, right? Like direct primary care right, is one, DPC, one yes. term that's used. Yes, and yes. and uh, I've been chastised for, for, <laughs> for calling it concierge because I think there is a sense by even even some professional associations in, in primary care that, that you know, this this is a model that might be viable, you know. But what I do say in the book is, is I don't see that kind of model being able to be scaled. Right. Um, right. It, it remains a model largely for the affluent, um, for people who are willing to pay more um, and, and get that connection. Um, what I would hope is we could potentially learn some things from that movement uh, and find ways to actually take some of those aspects, you know, and, and kind of incentivize, you know, primary care practices and, and, and primary care points of delivery uh, to, to do those things more. Um, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book is trying to find ways to monetize relational care excellence, right? So, you know, we pay doctors more. We give, we give doctors incentives to follow diabetes guidelines and hypertension guidelines religiously, and that's what the definition of good quality has become. Well, you know, why can't we find ways to better measure things like trust, empathy, uh, whether whether high-quality communication is being put forth between doctor and patient, and then incentivize those things financially for doctors and practices that do that. And, you know, so, so I think, you know, concierge care is a limited model, um, but I still think there's, there are things that are good about it that come from traditional primary care that, you know, we still want to be able to try and scale up in, in whatever way we can across the system. Thank you. you. So you do discuss, as you referenced or mentioned, uh, improve, improving measurement relative to, you said, empathy and other aspects of the primary care or the, 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 the office um, visit. There is, I will say, some promise, let's hope, in the movement relative to patient report outcome measures, sometimes termed PROMs, uh, and these are directly focused on measuring or having the patient describe or evaluate their experience of care beyond sort of clinical relative to, say, improved functionality, uh, less pain, et cetera, Um, but also, too, again, on the the interaction. That's right. Yeah, and I, let me just add for that, you know, what I what I mentioned in the book, but I'll say it even more strongly now, is I, I do think there's signs of moving in the right direction with, with focusing more on the patient experience, patient satisfaction, um, some of these qualities like trust. Where, what I worry about, though, is, is I worry that the it's the industry driving it, and it's the organizations controlling the measurement of it and controlling how it's operationalized. What, what I really talk about in the like to see is, you know, an entire Yelpification of healthcare. Right, right. <laughs> you know, it, you know, uh, Amazon do- didn't define how people rated their products. Uh, you know, Yelp, Yelp started first by coming from the consumer perspective and letting their voice define how they were going to define quality, service, you know. And I think in healthcare, we still treat the patient very paternalistically. We, we say to them, oh, you know, we want to focus on patient experience, but let us define what experience means. Let us measure it for you, mm-hmm. um, and then we're going to control all the data. And that's what I worry about. You know, I think a lot of a lot of these places, 
you know, are, are measuring things like patient satisfaction. I don't believe half the half the data I see, you know, because I don't trust that, you know, and 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 it's not disclosed, it's not transparent. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I would like to see a just open marketplace where, you know, I could go online and I could put in a Yelp-like rating for any provider, any place, and boom, that thing is is something then that the accreditors and the payers take seriously. Well, you're right. Yelp and others uh, are increasingly have increasingly moved into this space, and we'll see to the extent that patients actually want to and do contribute and participate. So that largely remains to be seen, although you're probably aware of physicians are cautious and have expressed concerns about um, going further down that road. Um, yes. In any event, uh, uh, Professor Hoff, uh, Tim, we're at our time boundary, sadly, so I do generally appreciate uh, the overview of this volume again, next in line, lowered care expectations of the age of retail and value-based health. You did mention your first volume. I'll mention it here as well. Again, this is 2010, Practice Under Pressure, Primary Care Physicians and Their Work in the 21st Century. Uh, in some ways, they should, I think, be read uh, together. Uh, in all events, Tim, thank you again for your time. Thank you very much. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.